There's nothing that our God can't do. Yeah. There's not a mountain that he can't move. Go. <laughs> Hip and trendy worship leader. I love you and everybody, isn't it crazy how quickly trends spread, especially with worship leaders. Now, everybody is saying a line and then saying, yeah, or saying a line and saying, come on. And sometimes the yeah doesn't even have to be a yeah. It's just a yeah. It's like a like driving cattle. Come on. Hey guys, welcome to another show. I want to just let you know that Pastor With No Answers continues to partner with Donor C to help families in emergency situations who live in impoverished countries. These opportunities to help would cost thousands in America, uh, but given the countries that they live in, we're talking a few hundred dollars. We have already, as a podcast listenership, helped three families. The last one was Jarwi, a 40-year-old mother of 11 children. Basically, she had a tumor growing on her uterus, and she needed a hysterectomy, hysterectomy, a hysterectomy or she could die like it was an emergency situation. Donor C partners with nonprofits all over the world to find these sorts of situations. And then they open this opportunity up for us here in America. And we get to meet needs. And it's not even that hard because the price is so low to do this. So I want to give you an opportunity to keep up with these opportunities. We do one a month. And you can text PWNAD to 81010 and keep up to date with every single family that we help. I also want to let you know that if you join our Patreon, from now on, everyone who joins Patreon, half of the money will go to the monthly opportunity to help a family. And I, first of all, want to thank Bronwyn Cole for joining Patreon. I know she was motivated to do that because of our partnership with DonorC. And then I want to thank Jen and David Treadway for increasing their giving because any current patrons that increase their giving from this point on, the increase will go to DonorC. So we are excited. I'm just beside myself with excitement that we've already been able to help three families. If you want to hear about more about Donor C, go find the Sarah Bessie interview. We did it like in the last three months. I should have glanced to see what number it was. But right at the beginning of the episode, we talk about Donor C. We actually talk to the founder to see how it works and to honestly give us give them some credibility with our listenership so everyone is comfortable with sending some money their way. I am excited about this episode. I'll tell you this. This is the first time this guy has ever been on a podcast, and it was one of the smoothest, most interesting interviews I've ever done. But before that, join me, John Mark McMillan, and Robbie Madison as we talk about some things God has done in our lives, most of them random, that we just cannot think of any other way that it happened other than God. You guys have a good one. Peace. We were talking a minute ago about praying and prayer and how complicated it is. 
you know, because it's it's hard to say you're blessed when your prayer gets answered, but like when your neighbor's kid dies of cancer, you know, and they were obviously praying too, you know, so I don't know how that works at all. I don't understand it at all, you know, but I also like don't want to fully let go of this idea that you can pray and like actually something can happen in the world, you know, there are no guarantees, you know, and right. I def- what I know for a fact, and I mean, I really know this is, I, I believe this anyway, I believe this as fact is that when I pray, like, something changes in me, and because I'm in the world, you know, like, it changes the world, in the, at least in that way, you know? It's not throwing anything else out, but I know that at least happens. But when I was a kid, I used to pray for the craziest stuff, and I swear I used to get my prayers answered, like, the weirdest yeah. prayers. And I used to have this, is kind of a joke, but kind of not a joke with my friends when I was in ministry school, like... Um, we, my buddy had a, he had all, he had all these weird characters that he grew up with in Kentucky and he had nicknames for them, you know, and I'm not going to say their nicknames cause they weren't all <laughs> great, but one guy in particular who he was really good friends with, he had all these stories and it's like, man, I would love to meet that guy. And he's like, we're driving to his hometown in Kentucky to spend like the 4th of July or something. And he's like, look, man, he's like, I haven't seen him in a decade. He's like, the odds that we're going to run into him are like nil. And I was like, and kind of joking, but like, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to meet this guy. He's all these stories about, you know, uh, <laughs> this guy was kind of a drug dealer and, you know, used to blow pot smoke into the dog's face. All this stuff that my friend was involved with before he became a believer you know but this guy was such an interesting character it's like i just want to meet this guy and so i prayed that we would meet this guy he had i wish i could say his nickname but i'm not going to but um (laughs) if it's if it's not to offend our listeners i don't really care about that (laughs) (laughs) well if it's it's not to offend your fan base (laughs) i'll play my cards really i'll play my cards close but you know, we were at the Dairy Queen. I was, I was like, I was like, Lord, I'd really like to meet this guy. I'd really like to see him. And I turned around. I was standing at the counter at the at the Dairy Queen. And I turned yeah. around and I could see through the walls. I saw this person walking up. And from what, from his description, I was like, that's him. I was like, that's totally him. He walked in. My buddy turned around. He tapped me on the shoulder. He goes. I was like, I was like, I was like, I know, I know it is. Favor ain't fair, bro. <laughs> Favor ain't fair. Uh, yes. but, but I had another one where. Wait, wait let, me, let me ask you. Like, yeah. were you at that point? Were you convinced God answered my prayer? Because yeah, I, as as a kid, I would have been convinced. And I hate the fact that like I I <laughs> I deal with the skepticism now to where like this is a. Real, I want to hear your next story. This is a, a quick one. We were in we were in Haiti. And a friend of mine, we were all sitting out there. It was it was dark at night. We'd just done a bunch of a bunch of work, building a house and everything. We're just chilling. And uh, my friend, he said, "Lord, please turn these lights off because they were just so bright. They were ruining the moment. They went boom off." Now, they're probably set on a timer, but that timer happened to be set right after he was going to say that. I was like, Jason, ask for a shooting star. He said, "Lord, give us a shooting star." I swear, a shooting star right afterwards. So I said, "I said, Jason, ask for another one." He said, "Hell no, I ain't messing this up." <laughs> he said, "I ain't, I ain't asking for another one." Oh That's man! Awesome. So I have two stories. One is funny, and one's I think kind of sweet. But 
I, I used to love, I'm a big comic book fan and you, I mean, you can't see me on the podcast, but I got my comic book wall behind me here, but yes, like sir. I was a big fan of Lois and Clark. Do you remember the TV show Lois and Clark? I thought Terry Hatcher was like super classy actress and Lois and Clark was done and she hadn't done anything for a while. And I remember praying, it's like, Lord, I think Terry Hatcher's a classy actress. I would really love it if you would reignite her career. And then she had the huge show. No one even talks about Lois and Clark anymore. They only talk about what was the show. The um, uh, 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 it's over now, but it was like a huge show for in the early two thousands. What was that show called? Lost. I don't know. I'm. It's something I'm about a street or something, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I can't. It was a huge show. I promise. I'm surprised, right? Terry Hatcher. Look at. <laughs> but I, I took credit for reigniting her career from my prayers. <laughs> this one, though, let me tell you this last prayer story, though. But I took my grandmother to see the Braves play. My grandmother was obsessed with the Braves. She yeah. was very independent. I and mean, she loved us. She was really kind. But, you know, like I'd come by her house sometimes and she'd hang out with me for three minutes and she'd sort of walk me out because she had bridge to play or something. And she's, you know, she's a very independent lady. Um, and she, uh, she watched the Braves religiously, right? And uh, the only time she ever called for help was when her TV died during uh, baseball <laughs> season. And we went out there and we bought her a new TV. So we took her. She had gotten older. We took her... Um, to see the Braves play, and she loved it, but it was hot. It was yeah. so hot. She's sitting out there in no shade, and she's elderly, you know, and I'm dying. I mean, I'm enjoying it, but I'm dying, and I'm a young guy, you know, and I can't imagine my grandmother, how she's feeling, you know, but and it was fun, but not a whole lot of action. You know, sometimes baseball is like nothing happens, you know, and I remember thinking, like, I don't think but she it, can take it, it. Even when it's yeah. even when it's really a good game, isn't it still just twenty percent of the game? Yeah, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know, totally. But so I, I remember praying, uh, close my eyes, and I was at this point I'd become a little bit skeptical, even. But I remember closing my eyes and thinking, like, this is my grandmother's last baseball game she'll ever see. Dang. It, you know, it could very well could be. I mean, she doesn't live close to Atlanta. We don't have a professional baseball team in North Carolina. Anyway, she's. She's getting older. This is might be her last baseball game she ever sees in person. I was like, Lord, please give my give. <laughs> I was like, Oh no! It was my dad said, Hey, we're gonna leave after you know when the inning changes over. And so it was the the last guy up to bat, and there were two outs, and um, and I was like, uh, Lord, please, I, please for my grandmother, like give us a home run. And as soon as I said the word run crack i heard the ball sailed oh over the fence and we were gonna leave no matter what happened after that batter and nothing happened the whole game and i prayed and literally as i said the word home run i heard the bat. like i will never forget that Gee. you know so all that is stuff that, could is, be coincidence is, but something in me still feels like you know there's yeah you almost have to go back to that as like a as a block in your face yeah. like a building block i i'd have a hard time not doing that too I like i i remember when i was just starting to come out of my innocence when it came to thinking about heaven and hell and whether i'm going to be okay and all that stuff and and i almost feel like god knew 
that I was about to embark in a very long, tumultuous, fearful journey. And I remember about where I was standing in my bedroom. And I understand if every single listener thinks, oh, dude, that was something weird, psychological, like obviously. But to this day, I really do believe that it happened. I I just said a simple prayer was about as childlike as you could be because I was a child. And I just basically said, God, am I going to be in heaven forever with you? And I felt overcome come with like comfort and peace wow. and joy like just overcome and i really think when i get to heaven i'll ask god hey was that you and he's gonna be like heck yeah it's me <laughs> heck yeah you're totally. a child you want to know what's what's like robbie what's your like when you you know because i know a good bit about your childhood what is kind of what would be the most significant shifts i guess how you see prayer from a child like has it has it gotten have you become more skeptical or more faithful or or what um i would say like i i tend to really step out in faith with a lot of that stuff pretty consistently but um the biggest shift for me was probably when bronson died a few years ago uh, one of my best friends um and uh just like sitting in the room with him praying every day that he'd heal you know that god would heal him and that he'd bring him back and so um, that was a that was the hardest one for me. Um, it made everything yeah. really challenging for me after that. Um, even leading worship sometimes was really hard. Right. You know, singing. Um, well, I was really I was I was kind of mad <laughs> at God right. for a while right. too. Um, so I didn't really want to sing "Good Good Father" because I was like, I know it's true, but at the same time, like I don't really want to sing that to you right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> you right. know, and um, but I mean as you guys were talking, I was thinking through there's so many times that I just know that it was God's hand, uh, over my life. And I think that there was prayer involved in it. I don't know. Like, um, I, I agree. Like, I don't really know how that works. I think there's so many things about God that is a mystery and will always remain a mystery <laughs> until we are with him. Um, and, um, and so I think about when I lived in Argentina for a little bit, I had a lot of housing issues. Um, as in the, the people that hired me to go there kicked me out of their house. <laughs> Whoa. So, yeah, that's an issue. <laughs> yeah. So I was a missionary <laughs> and, uh, and I was working for other missionaries and there were lots of really crazy things that I, uh, kind of went through with, with my team down there. But, um, that was one, one time for me, I was just like, I ended up leaving this house thinking I have literally no idea where I'm going to stay tonight. <laughs> like, gosh. And so it became this thing of like every day or at least few days, I was just like, okay, Lord, by the end of the day, I need another place to stay. <laughs> right. And right. I would just like get another phone call or like, you know, whatever. Like at one point I would travel like two hours to go stay with a friend, you know, for like two nights and then report back to work the next day. It just was like the craziest season. I got kicked out of so many houses while I was living down there. And, um, but I also think about, um, my first year of marriage, uh, to Elizabeth, Elizabeth was still in school, um, at the time. So I was working, um, at a church for Joey. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't working, you were working for the Lord, man. I was working for the Lord, but I was working under Joey, (laughs) my, my friend and boss. And, um, and I just remember like, I was like, there's no way that I could live and uh, pay for a house, you know, for me and my wife 
in this city with this job that I have, you know, and it just, it was such a like worrisome. Hey, tell, tell everybody we're at a church where I didn't decide your salary. Now you making me sound like <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge, man. I was like, if Joey doesn't give me a raise, then I'm just going to be homeless. I'm just like, no, no, no. But then I just literally, I remember praying with you. Actually, you said you were just like, Hey, like just kind of challenging me to give that over and surrender that to God. And so I did, I was like praying and I was like, okay, Lord, this, the math doesn't add up. <laughs> so I don't know how you want to work this out, but I'm going to step out in faith and trust that you brought me to this church and this job and just trust you. Literally the next day, I got a phone call from this company asking me if I could interpret, because uh, I speak Spanish, asking if I could interpret for somebody's doctor's appointment. And I was like, uh, Yes. <laughs> so like, actually, I said, it was actually for like an immigration appointment or something like that. And I, I, I went there, I went to the appointment and I was like terrified the whole way through. I was like, I've never done this professionally before. Like, I don't even know where this phone call came from, you know, yeah. and um, I went and it got canceled. And I was like, thank God that got canceled. And as soon as I got home, I got another phone call asking for me to interpret for a doctor's appointment. And I was like, and these are just out of the blue? Out of the blue. Completely wow. out of the blue. And that whole year, that kept happening. I, I interpreted for doctor's appointments, dental appointments. Like, I became a professional medical interpreter. <laughs> out of the, just like, out of nowhere. And it was just supplemental Gee. income until something else came. And, you know, it just was the weirdest thing. But Dude, when I told you to trust, I was just scrambling, man. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know what to say to you. <laughs> you, you were being prophetic, Joey. <laughs> Dude, you know what I've kind of discovered is almost anyone I hang out with late, you have a few beers and you're sitting on the porch and you start talking. Like, even my friends who don't really believe in God, if it yeah. gets late enough and if they have, you know, a few beers, <laughs> like, if this topic comes up, they always have something. They're like, well, I don't believe in God, but, you know, I just can't explain this thing that happened to me when right. I was 12. I'm like, you said it, not me, bro. Right. But right. it's something about, like, you're not allowed to to think those thoughts like once you right. like walk away from certain things that you think are wrong or whatever and like but once you start thinking those thoughts sometimes they flood back you're like god there's a lot right. of that kind of stuff i think we just sort of like yeah. when something weird happens and it's anom an anomaly just like it's like that didn't really happen yeah. you you forget about it mm -hmm. you know but then and at some hard. point yeah i mean it's safe, hard to put yeah 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 it's hard to put anything that i think we just shared into a coincidental category, yeah, yeah. which is, is like, I, I, I mean, another story uh, occurred to me as my second year of teaching. I was single, living with some fellas. I really needed to get there. I didn't want to be late and I had to bring some sort of a form and I could not find the form. I was like, I cannot believe because I'm usually good at keeping track of my things. I was looking all over and finally I was like, Lord, please show me where this form is. The very next place I looked, there it was. I mean, and I'm, I, I even think that I looked there before. So I'm like, God, did you just make that thing appear right there? I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Hey, I've been I've been wanting to share this on the pod like it's it's a it's a weird transition here, but I've been wanting to share this so badly. Robbie, I don't think I've I've even told shared this story with you. So one of my biggest, you know, thinking about my childhood, one of my biggest blunders as a as a father. So my first daughter born in two thousand six, Robbie knows her well, that gave her giving her voice lessons and that sort of thing. But so Rosa, I mean, she, 
she she has like she deals with a lot of anxiety and she's like super strong and courageous and gets through it. Well, as a kid, she had, you know, just a, a kid version of it. Well, I was in a very, very fundamentalist, like I cookie cutter theology. This is how things go. And so I was kind of being theological, but I was also kind of being trippy. And I told Rosa at like two years old, I said, Rosa, I love you so much. I said, when you get married, I said, there's no man that's going to take you away from me. I said, I'm going to, I, I will, your father will give you to that man. They're not going to take, they're not going to take you from me. And her eyes go like this. And she, maybe she was three. She's like, I don't want to go to that man. And I was like, no, 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 no. I said, no, you no. when you're married, you're going to want to. She's like, she's like please don't give me to that man. And so I promise you for the next week or two, I would go get her out of bed in the morning. And she's just like, dad, you promise you're not going to give me to oh that man. I felt so bad. I was like, what the hell was I doing? The little girl. So finally I had to say, Rosa, you are never going to that man ever, ever. I just, I made a mistake. You're not going to that man. And, and that's all she needed to hear. Like, Gosh, I'm hilarious. stupid with my kids, man. Oh my Oh my gosh, <laughs> what what were you saying, Robbie? So you you adopted your your niece and yeah. she's in in high school. Yes. What were you saying about WAP? Because I don't know. You were texting me that. I don't even know what that is. I don't so, know what. Okay. <laughs> so it's pronounced WAP. WAP. And right. it's like going viral right now on TikTok and Instagram and all. John the, Mark, you know what things. this is? I'm I'm aware. Yes, I'm fully aware. <laughs> So I yeah, have I'm something purist, funny to man. say about this too. <laughs> I'm a purist. Yeah, you, you're a purist until okay. Now, I was just, okay, so what? What the kids? What the young kids are doing right now is they're they're recording their parents' reactions of them doing the WAP in front of them. <laughs> and so yeah, so what is the WAP like twerking or something? It's a little worse than that. It's a little. It's it's worse than that. It's a song by Cardi B. It's okay. really bad. I'm not going to say what the acronym stands for. I will say that my niece told me it stood for worship and praise. Which <laughs> 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 is like so far <laughs> from that. <laughs> but like it's, yeah. I'm curious what percentage. So do you think the vast majority of people listening to this are not Googling it? Like I'm one of the only ones that have no idea what the heck you're talking it depends about. depends on how old they are probably. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Like super pop culture. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure the song is like a number one billboard song right. like it's got to be I, I mean it's hard to believe that the song that song could be such a popular song but it's not like a um subculture thing like it's like full on yeah yeah literally like i'm sure that there are people at their offices like in the break room like just like you know doing the WAP or something. I'm yeah. like, this is, like, what is happening with the world? <laughs> oh, yeah. my gosh. So, yeah, anyway, like, I definitely have used that out of context a few times, not really knowing what the acronym stood for. And then yeah. also there's another one that she uh, she likes to just get me on her. I'm, I think I'm all over her TikTok at this point. Um, I don't know because I'm not on TikTok. But <laughs> she was like, Uncle Robbie, read this out loud. And I was like, it's got cuss words in it. And then she's like, she's like, you know, like, you think I'm not going to read it because it's got cuss words in it? And then she's like, she's like, yeah. So I read it like kind of like very expressively, but I didn't say the cuss words, but I was like acting like I was going to. 
and she was recording me and she posted it on her TikTok and like all of her friends know me as the guy like reading the lyrics to Savage. <laughs> Classy, bougie, ratchet, like, you know, like. <laughs> Right, we are here with Dr. Sam Young. Yes, I have smart people joining me on this podcast all the time. Sam, this has been a long time coming, man. We've been trying to put this thing together for a while, eh? Yeah, we, we sure have. I've appreciated you uh, you keeping it going, and I'm glad we're able to, to connect and have this discussion. For sure. So we actually talked for the first time yesterday. We've, we've gone back and forth on email, and to be honest, I... I had no kind of no idea what the hell we were going to be talking about. I just kind of dipped my toe into reading about your book, and I was like, well, it's definitely up my alley. And after talking, it seemed like this conversation is going to revolve around, I don't, I'll just point out the Philippian verse where it says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so I've been thinking about our conversation. I've been thinking, I have for so long just said, oh, yeah, Jesus, fully man, fully God. That makes sense. Fully man, fully God. That's right. And it's like we are so quick to say these short little things to put it in a little box. And I'm like, I, I kind of came down on myself. I'm like, we got to slow the hell down with this like I personally I started thinking about it. I was like I personally don't necessarily even see this as doctrine as much as I see this as the best way we can make sense out of this the best way for us to describe it because I do believe Jesus is God but do I think fully God fully man makes sense no and I, I it seems like so I'll, I'll I'll pass the mic here in a second but it seems like if that's true, which I'm not saying it's not, I'm just saying I don't understand it, but if that's true and it's that simple, fully man, fully God, then it seems like we'd have to say Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship and we should not worship Jesus. He's only a man. What do we do? <laughs> yeah. So before we go into all of this, kind of tell us a little bit who you are and like the posture you'll be taking because you, you seem to you know it, it, talking a little bit last night it seems like you're exploring a lot of this stuff as well yeah yeah that's right I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to that I you know my, my background I currently am a professor at a little school called Bryan College I, I, I te also teach for a couple of other schools um, and that's uh, that's a great thing. It's a great dream of mine to be able to work in higher education and to yep. teach. I always knew I wanted to, to do that. But that journey started for me. I'll give you the, the short version. But uh, that, that journey started for me growing up in a, in a church where um, lots of really good stuff uh, in that church, lots of wonderful people. But I was oriented very much toward toward questions, very much toward the intellect. Uh, it was probably a pretty insufferable, irritating uh, teenager to, ha to have at times. And um, for, for better or worse, I wound up at a big state school in a comparative religion program. And I, I've been raised in the Christian church, but because of my questions and other things, I had a, a pretty distant relationship, relationship to it at the time. 
And these comparative religion scholars, not a single one of whom was a person of, of faith that I ever knew, because it was a piece of their method. It, it was a thing they deeply believed in as teachers. You should not know where I'm coming from. Where I'm coming from as the teacher actually doesn't matter that much. I'm just a guy. There's great voices from the past, true giants of spiritual and philosophical traditions. Those are the ones to pay attention to what they think. I'm here to facilitate your thinking. I'm here to help you make your questions as good as they can be. And at the time, I had no idea I would wind up teaching at Christian institutions. I didn't even know if I would still be a Christian at the end of college. Thankfully, uh, I still was. Um, and I'm very grateful for what I get to do now. But I still bring that general sort of approach, even as uh, someone who would self-describe as an evangelical Christian, actually. I, uh, an evangelical means different things to different people, but totally, I, I, totally. I, I, I claim it uh, to, to a degree, of course. Um, but yeah, I still try to bring that kind of mode, and that's a good word for it, is exploration, right? I, I have my personal convictions, but those don't matter a, a ton. Um, the exploration I've gotten to do on this topic, which formed kind of the bulk of my work on my on my PhD, and it was the subject of my of my first book that, that came out this last year that kind of galvanized our, or, or kind of set off our initial uh, conversation. Um, yeah, this is just something I've always been fascinated by. And you said it really well. If he's God, we, we ought to worship him because you ought to worship God if God exists. If he's not God, well, that, that was the claim against the church to begin with. That was the initial breaking point of the Christian movement from the Jewish movement is this yeah. idea that, and still has been, the scandal of Christianity to a significant degree. Uh, just like Paul says there in, in 1 Corinthians, not, not only worshiping a man, but a man who dies a humiliating, bloody death. Uh, just seems absurd. I mean, it just seems like a crazy yeah. thing to do, right? Um, and I love the yeah. absurdity. I, I mean, to yeah. me, that's what makes it like yeah, this can't be made up. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you're if you're gonna try to get a bunch of people to worship some guy that walked on Earth, and you don't you don't you don't make them that way, you know? I mean, just complete humble guy that yeah was just completely taken advantage taken advantage of obviously the the resurrection and all of that stuff but it is it is something that i have learned recently through listening to a lot of progressive thinkers that and and correct me if i'm wrong jesus and again i i it it sounds like you're even more comfortable to be loose like you you know you're not worried about ruffling people's feathers i i have to tell people i believe in jesus i worship jesus i believe he's god but i want to throw this at you jesus never asked us to worship him did he like didn't he never once it was always follow me but not worship me am i correct there it's an, I mean, it's an interesting question. In terms of, there's lots of things that we think Jesus said, of course, that he never said, right? Which is, if you search the Gospels, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look for Jesus giving you, you know, a, a command, you do this, and the thing he asks you to do is worship me, praise me, sing songs to me, you won't find that express thing. What you will find, especially in Matthew's Gospel, is that they do worship him, and he doesn't tell them to stop. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. And so that happens two or three times in Matthew's gospel. And then, of course, at the end of Matthew, we get the Great Commission. And when Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Spirit, oh, yeah, but also the Son, which is what I call myself throughout this gospel, uh, baptizing somebody into the name that Jesus has claimed for himself right. is pretty. It's a pretty worshipful thing yeah. to do. I guess we Absolutely. could get more technical what we mean by worship. But, yeah, um, yeah you're right. There's lots of things. I mean, we, we say this, interestingly enough, you might have been going here already in a minute, but Jesus doesn't, you can read all of Mark, for instance, and Jesus makes no explicit claim to deity, to, to being God, in any way that we would 
recognize with our contemporary language and some of the terms we would use. Jesus never uses the term divine nature. He never uses the word Trinity or a Greek equivalent to it or an Arabic or an Aramaic equivalent to it um, so far as we know. And, and there's you have to get all the way near the end of John's gospel. And even then it's in the mouth of Thomas. In the mouth of Thomas, my Lord and my God, after Jesus shows up so he won't doubt anymore, that and Jesus, again, doesn't refuse it. Just like in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't refuse the worship, right? Yeah. But but there is, G- Jesus does say things along the lines of when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, which doesn't necessarily mean divinity, but it's still, at least the people got mad at him because it seemed like he was claiming equality with God, right? Yeah, making himself, that's in John's gospel, yeah, yeah, you won't find that, for instance, in Mark or Luke, but those stories are in John, and uh, the Greek is weird there, we won't talk too much about, about the Greek language probably uh, here, but uh, it says he was making himself one with God, it's like a very literal uh, phrasing in Greek, and it, it's also a way you could express uh, a deep alignment, not necessarily a co-identification. We, we got to remember that the conceptual world of the first century doesn't doesn't yet have the tools that the later Christian tradition will develop, which is the language of like a human nature and a divine nature. Uh, here's a, a fun a fun fact about that kind of language. The only time in the New Testament that you will find the two-word combination divine nature, it gets applied to us. And that's in, wow. the, that's in the letters of Peter where it says we will become partakers of the divine nature. Um, anyways, it's just an interesting thing. Sometimes we can assume, oh, that's all over the gospel is Jesus's divine nature. And you can certainly get it there. There's lots of great scholars who cash out. No, it's there, but it has to be sort of unearthed um, in, in a way that, of course, the later tradition does and passes on uh, to us. So do we get it mostly from Paul, would you say, as far as Jesus divine so, I mean, again, I think there's those, those very clear hints of the worship and not refusing yep. the titles from, from Thomas uh, and things like that. Um, and there's, there's some other unique, unique dimensions. I'm sure we'll talk about the Gospels a lot and what, what we're coming to. Uh, but certainly, yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's identifications with Paul. Uh, and I think this brings us pretty organically back to that Philippians 2 passage. Um, and that passage is, uh, man, it's a, it's a tough nut to crack, and it has been throughout the history of the church. Um, and there's a, you know, you, you read it earlier, but it comes at this very interesting moment where he's concerned about the, the, the Philippian church, and he basically is trying to like give them an ethics lesson. He's trying to give them like a moral of the story. And so before he launches into this really interesting uh, thing he says about Jesus, he makes the point that I'm telling you this because I want you to have the same mind as Jesus had. Well, what kind of mind did Jesus have? Well, I'll tell you. And then he says, even though he was in the form of God, right, he did not consider equality with God something. You used a translation that said grasp. It's actually very hard to translate. Translations uh, will also say, uh, didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, which just those differences are interesting, uh, but instead emptied himself, made himself nothing. And and, and so it's, Paul is saying something that is really seismic, really big theologically, but he's doing it to teach the church an ethical lesson. Uh, it's, got a, it's got an inherently practical thing. So nowadays, and we'll probably speak to this dynamic as we go on, but theology can get very abstract. And the average churchgoer and the average Christian can say, yeah, if I'm not really inclined to ask those questions, do I really care about that discussion? And yeah. Paul, Paul cared about it insofar as it made the church wake up and treat one another better. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know. yeah. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's like I sometimes just want to scream at the top of my lungs. Like I, I've, I've tried to explain to. I mean, most of our listenership they they listen to this podcast because they definitely relate to the same questions and that sort of thing. But for those who this discussion has already caused some discomfort. It's like, I just want to say, like, I am totally a Christian. I have come likely from similar places that you have, but let's just all admit that this doesn't all line up and not to the point that we say, well, let's throw it all away and not believe it's may our faith increase. Like, may we rejoice in, in this mystery that just absolutely doesn't make sense. I mean, I think how you've even communicated who who you are. I mean, people should hear loud and clear. This is two Christian brothers talking, and I mean, we're we're going to take this thing pretty far in exploring different ways of looking at things. But I, I ascribe to Jesus being part of the Trinity and and what all that stuff means. So, let me ask you this. Do you think that when it comes to, and and obviously we can take the word essentials in so many different directions, but do you think that it's an essential belief for when people look at Jesus, they believe that he always was, created the heavens and the earth, was with the Father throughout all eternity, or can a Christian believe that Jesus was made divine by God? Yeah, Is that a possibility for Christian faith? Like God made Jesus divine, but Jesus wasn't with God all that time. Yeah, no, it's a great, I mean, it's a great question. It's a question that the early church had to wrestle with because, you know, we, we see it in the New Testament, right? you got the, the Christian proclamation that's initially coming from these Jewish guys, right? All, almost all of Jesus's, to our knowledge, his entire original circle is Jewish. Um, and he had he had kind of trace interactions with, with non-Jews, so some Samaritans, some Syrophoenicians, some Romans, obviously. Um, but by and large, the Jewish movement, uh, initially in Jerusalem at Pentecost, speaking to Jews. And this was a really difficult thing. The identity of Jesus was was no small item in the Jewish proclamation to other Jews, Jewish Christians trying to, you know, communicate this message in that context. And we see, I mean, the book of Acts has very little in it by way of Roman persecution of the church. It's largely Jewish in that context because this was so controversial. This, this started so many uh, debates and arguments. They chased Paul out of town, all, all these different things, right? Um, and so what ends up happening, to your question, is uh, there, there winds up being a group of, of thinkers, uh, Jewish by background, and about the, the late 2nd century, early early 200s in, in the history of the church, we start hearing about them, and they believed exactly that. Uh, they believed that Jesus was a very powerful prophet, they believed that he was the Messiah, and they believed that Jesus, the God, the Father, even sort of like adopted this prophet into the divine life, sort of sort of blessed him with a divine identity. They usually thought that happened at his baptism. And so Jesus was a man, uh, not, not pre-existent, uh, but, but baptized and then kind of came to share in the divine identity or the divine life at that time. How about virgin birth? Is that something... So they on or off the table. So that was so we don't know for this particular group. They're called the Ebi- yeah. they're called the Ebionites. We don't a lot of their stuff was destroyed because <laughs> I mean they threw that virgin <laughs> stuff away, man. <laughs> yeah, and so I mean, so I, re- I would respond to your question. I, I don't think I know more than the church that had to fight you know so hard for the faith in the two hundreds and three hundreds up until the time of Constantine. They disagreed with the Ebionites that the vast majority of the church went another way and said a lot of them would dialogue with it and we see where you're coming from, uh, but eventually no, you need 
to move past this to a position in which Jesus is divine. And to be divine doesn't mean you you become divine. It means it's something that's true of you from the beginning. God's the creator. So you've got to predate the world in your divinity. So we call this pre-existence, which is a weird thing to say. But basically it means that something about the identity that we find in Jesus of Nazareth, his his divineness, his godness, was there and was true and was uh, a part of his identity before he was born of Mary. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say that that's, that's historically definitely uh, an essential. But as you've said very well up to this point, doesn't make, doesn't make it make any sense. Um, right. And that's really what's come out of that Philippians 2 passage. It's this, it's this idea that got some interesting legs about 300 years ago, so which is pretty recent in church history because we've got about 2,000 years to, to pick from. Uh, and, and it was an idea that was generated by the, the observation that the church sometimes really struggles not with the deity of Christ. We talked about the Ebionites just now. That kind of struggle was pretty much taken care of in the first couple hundred years of the development of theology. As you get up into the 16, 17, 1800s, historical study is really booming, scientific study is really booming, and the church is like doubling down on the deity of Christ, his transcendence, his glory, his power. And and some thinkers, they were actually Lutheran theologians, they realized, I I think we're really struggling to see clearly the humanity of Jesus. Right. And so it's been said by a lot of people, the early church had to fight for the deity of Christ, but the church since then has basically had to fight for the humanity. Uh, the, The humanity has been the thing that uh, we, we maybe too often forget about or too often diminish or um, it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes maybe yeah. it makes us afraid. We're afraid of Jesus being too human, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, and to, and to throw some, just, just to get it on our radar on this episode, you know, I'll just read some things that Jesus said. And, and, and here's what I would say is Jesus clearly Obviously, you if you disagree, then you win. You've got the degrees. But <laughs> Jesus said, Jesus clearly made himself uh, inferior to the Father with his words. I mean, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The Father is greater than I. Uh, I don't know the days and times in which these things will happen. Only the Father knows. And I've heard all of the systematic theology explaining this stuff. And the point that Jesus was trying to make with only God is is good and, and the, the what he was setting up and, and all of that. But what if we just took this stuff at, at face value? The only way that I, and, and I'm becoming as I get older and my faith, I think, being purified in my relationship with with my creator i'm being less and less concerned with figuring this stuff out but it just so happens to be super interesting and the only thing that i can do to make sense of of jesus's humanity and him being god is that he going back to that philippians passage he voluntarily set a lot of that stuff off to the side because if you're god you should be able to do that so uh, what what if Jesus could have known the mind of the Father perfectly? What if he could have known when all these things were going to happen? What if he could have called himself good, but he put all that stuff aside and said, I am a man, and I'm, I'm not going to talk in a way of being God because that's, that's not the time to do it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so that's... 
it's an interesting way of coming at it because that is what those those couple of Lutheran theologians 300 some years ago that I just mentioned, it's, it's kind of the move they made. They looked at Philippians 2. They said there's this very strange thing said about Jesus. And by the way, in, in terms of the chronology of what's written in the New Testament, the Gospels are written quite a bit after the letters of Paul, according to conservative right. and moderate and liberal New Testament scholars. Just Isn't pre, James pre- supposed to be the oldest in the New Testament from what I gather? Uh, James James sometimes gets people who contend for it. First Thessalonians gets people contending for okay. it. So does Galatians. It's one of those three, though. It's pretty. It's gonna yeah. be one of those three. Philippians is very early itself, though. It's pr- it's probably within, you know, uh, it's con- significantly before the writing of Mark, which a lot of us would take to be the earliest gospel. Which means, radically enough, because First Thessalonians and James and Galatians don't have a long Christological passage in them. Uh, it's kind of doing some doctrine, seemingly about Jesus. This is just fun trivia, but also just really awesome historically. Philippians 2 is the earliest bit of like formal theology about Jesus that we have in history is Philippians 2. A lot of people will think about John 1 that way, but John 1 is very, it's beautiful, it's cool, it's great. It means a lot for the development of certain ideas, but it's late. It's maybe 40 years, 45 years after the writing of Philippians, depending on who you talk to. Right. Um, Anyway, so these Lutheran guys, they looked at that. They said there's this very strange verb, he emptied himself. And it's not a verb that Paul uses a lot. He uses it in a couple of other places, which we might get to, but emptied. He emptied himself. And it seems like there's a distinct movement in Philippians 2. And anyone who's listening, who, who cares, can open up a Bible and look at it as I'm talking right now, and you'll see this. It starts off, it's like Philippians 2.6. Form of God. Okay, starts right there. And and the Greek there is pretty straightforward. That's not tricky translations. Most translations will do it exactly the same way. Form of God means like God stuff, Godness, right? Um, But then emptied himself to be born in human likeness. So whatever makes him go from God to human likeness is contained in that emptying. And what, what, what Joe, it might be related to what you're talking about here, Joey, this, this setting aside of something. And that, that's what the, these Lutheran guys uh, said. And we, we know them now as canonic theologians, and that's a mouthful. But that, what that word means is it comes from this, this verb in Philippians 2. It, it's, it's kanao is the Greek, and so you make it into kind of a weird quasi-English word, and it's kenosis. And if you're going to yeah. use it like an adjective, you say you say kanotic. And the idea there is simply this setting aside-ness, this limitingness, or this emptying uh, movement. And so kanotic Christologians or canonic thinkers about Jesus have essentially, they're all, there's a bunch of diversity, we can talk about some of that, but they've all been united on just this point. Whatever it means to be God, some of that has to change to be, to live a truly human life. Right. Um, so for instance, right, think about something that pretty much all Christians historically would ascribe to God, omnipresence. God, God is somehow everywhere, not spatially contained. To be human, to have a physical body, is to be spatially contained. An omnipresent human, you, you, you got what, what kind of humanity is that? That doesn't sound very human. Or omnipotence, really any of those kind of omni things. They're the easiest ones to think about. What, <laughs> what, what would an all-powerful human being be? We, we, we would nowadays we have categories for that. We call it like Superman, right? It's not someone who's going to be, like it says in Hebrews, made like us in every way except for sin. Like that's, right. or but but without sin is what it says. So to be made like us in every way. So they're thinking about that from Hebrew, Hebrews. They've got this tool with the self-emptying in Philippians 2. And then they've got the witness of the gospels themselves, which you've already ran through a lot of the kind of the highlights there. Jesus doesn't seem to be walking around issuing omnipotent waves of power every single place that he goes, right? Right. Um, And so this was their way of saying, we're not saying Jesus is less than God, but that God voluntarily did something 
awesome in Jesus, which is yeah. that he limited his godness in some way, right? And let me, let me ask you this as far as the sin component is one thing that I've, I've thought about a lot is we try to say things like Jesus experienced all the pain that we did and experienced all the temptations and all of that. And I, I, that just doesn't fully connect for me because all of I, I for sure believe that he experienced pain, um, rejection, all, all, but it, it's not something that I, I think, yeah, he's experienced everything that I've experienced because all of us would readily admit that we cannot, as humans, do things perfectly. We'll fall short all the time. We'll sin for sure. And if that's not true for Jesus, then that has to be from his divinity, or we'd have to admit that we could possibly live without sin ourselves. It's one mm-hmm. or the other. Either Jesus used his divinity not to sin, or we have the capacity not to sin. Yeah. So how, how, how do you think Jesus kept from sinning? Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. And of course, not, not everybody who would take up this conversation would necessarily agree like straight down the pipe sure. uh, with certain ways of phrasing it, right? But I, I think it's... Really? They, they would not agree with me, man? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, there's just, you know, just these, there's other ways of, of coming at it, right? And there's a sense in which you know, there's some really interesting ways of reflecting on, you know, what the, what constitutes a temptation, right? Is it right, a sin right. to be tempted? There's a school of thought out there, Joey, that says to even experience a temptation, like, oh, look at that, that's tempting. Right. Even that movement right there is sinful, and Jesus didn't experience that, right? There are some who are like, oh, no, he could have been tempted, like pretty like a lot of temptation a lot of like maybe desire for something but that didn't act on it so there's lots of different ways of sort of slicing it and i I, we can come come back around to that in just a second but i think the question brings up this really fundamental thing let's say somebody's tracking so far they say yeah god omnipotent humans aren't omnipotent so he has to self-empty you know something like that but that does beg the question well then what is what's going on with his divinity does he only like use it a little bit does he just kind of tap into it when things are are tricky or difficult uh what's going on and uh really the the canonic thinkers have traditionally said listen there's three members of the trinity they're all god equally that's a, that's a, that's an inheritance for the historic church is that affirmation that was hard fought in the historic church to get to that kind of affirmation You read a lot of work on Christology, though, a lot of work about Jesus in the history of the church. It is remarkably silent about the Spirit, even though you can hardly turn a page of Luke or John's Gospel without the Spirit doing some cool stuff. And what what the canonic thinkers have said, they've said, if we don't take the kenosis from Philippians 2 of Christ seriously, we will inevitably diminish the power of the Spirit in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Essentially claiming that oh, the really so interesting. Yeah, essentially claiming that the, the, that the really remarkable things that are true about Jesus and that are affirmed historically are not because he drew upon his own I'm God the Son, so I have this power pack of divinity to use whenever things are difficult, but that he, as a man, fully man, right, uh, was, as all human beings must be, uh, dependent on the Spirit, radically dependent on the Spirit. Um, and there's some really interesting hints in the Gospels about this, right? Um, first of all, we should note that Old Testament, pre-Gospels, 
the prophets, you know, by the Spirit of God, are able to do some pretty legit stuff. You know, everything from future-oriented prophecy to raising people from the dead to fire from heaven. We could debate a lot of those stories. There's different ideas about the historicity. But in the main, the, 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 the mainstream of the Christian tradition has affirmed, like, that really happened. And those guys were not a member of the Trinity themselves. They right. were able to draw upon the power of God in a remarkable way. Um, and there, there's, and you think about the miracles of Jesus, of course they're awe-inspiring, of course they're remarkable, but because a lot of Christians are often fairly ignorant of the Old Testament, and that's not, that's not every Christian, some Christians love the Old Testament and know it quite a bit, but we're not in the prophets a ton compared to maybe how much we are in the Gospels, it's easy to think that Jesus is the only one in Scripture who does that sort of thing. Right, right. And it seems like, especially in a place like Luke and Matthew, those two Gospels, a lot of the miracles they take the time to recount are Jesus seemingly deliberately kind of re-performing the things that the yeah. prophets did in the past. Totally. So, you know, anyway, so that's a really significant thing. The power of the Spirit is the kind of power that seemingly shows up in the prophets and empowers the prophetic and miraculous activity of Jesus. And then if that's the case for, like, miracles and things, and we could we could say more about that, that in his personal kenosis, his personal limitation, he's radically dependent on the Holy Spirit, that would mean that his sinfulness is similarly dependent in that way. Or his... Right. Uh, no, his sinfulness, his sinlessness, sinlessness his, yeah. his lack of sinning would be similarly dependent on the Holy Spirit and made and made real in time via the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and, and I mean, I like imagining here. I, to, for me, it would make sense if the Holy Spirit availed him or herself to Jesus in a way that we've never experienced before. Almost like not only here's the strength but I'm also signifying stuff in your brain, making confirmation that you can do these things. Like if I go outside and I try to multiply bread and fish deep down inside, I'm like, I'm going to make a jackass of myself. There's no way this is going to work. But I feel like if, if the, if, if Jesus had that purpose, then the Holy spirit could have easily been like, not only do you have faith, but I am going to do this. I mean, just like you can feel the, the palms of your hands, you know, this is true. Go and do it. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. I do think there is an argument that uh, although there is a parallel to what we see in the prophets with Jesus, he gets the Spirit in a unique way. He's uniquely endowed with the Spirit's power. John 3.34, talk, Jesus is talking and he says, he's given me the Spirit without measure. Uh, and, and the way that that underlying phrase works, it's basically right it's yep. basically limitlessly. So he's given the prophets the spirit with a measure, a certain measure of the spirit. He's given it to me with no measure. And when does he get that? It's, it's, it's a reasonable thing to ask. When does Jesus get the spirit without measure? And people are divided. Even the canonic thinkers are divided. That either happened because he was conceived by the spirit, and that's been true since he was, you know, in utero, basically. But others have said, no, the biblical witness seems to hold off on an awful lot of Jesus' awesome stuff until after his baptism, when the Spirit descends on him bodily. And speaking of what you just mentioned, not just miraculous acts, but maybe a confirmation of, uh, I'm, I'm more than a man. I'm more than just a regular Jewish guy. I'm God's prophet. I'm God's Messiah. I might share in God's very own life. That's being confirmed to me via the Holy Spirit, um, so much so that in Luke, after his time in the desert, he goes into the synagogue, reads one of the big messianic prophecies from Isaiah, and then says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, with like an incredible confidence, right? And shortly thereafter, they try to like throw him off the cliff. But this right. is a, right. it's a lot of confidence, right? To your point, it's a lot of... Uh, 
it, it, we, I think sometimes, and you see this sometimes in certain canonic uh, uh, thinkers, they reduce the Spirit's thing to just power, basically, just like gives Jesus miracle power. I think that's where you start. Um, I certainly think there's all sorts of other things the Spirit is doing throughout the ministry of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do some of the canonic thinkers, so would, would, would it be fair to describe it this way, like Jesus was because of God's ordination for this, Jesus was like the perfect intersection of humanity and divinity, and like I said, breathed out of, of, of God. But this this was a man that was born just like you or, or, or myself, or through a virgin birth, which, yeah, that's a really, really big difference. But God said... This is I am I am making this a perfect intersection of humanity and divinity. Go do your thing. Yeah, I mean that that generally something like that. I mean you you phrased it more in a way that we would do like in a kind of a contemporary kind kind of way of thinking about it. But that was usually regarded as the significance of the virgin birth. Is Jesus could not carry forward into the into this kind of ministry and death and resurrection uh, the same sort of humanity. He had to be he had to come into the world differently. Um, and this is where the whole second Adam or last Adam idea comes in. Humanity basically gets a reboot in Jesus. And there's a couple really interesting whole Bible things you can do, right, where you're looking at Adam's, uh, you know, Adam goes to a tree and fails because uh, he can't obey God. On his way to a tree, Jesus will collapse in Gethsemane and say, not my will, but yours be done, which is an essential inversion of what happens in Eden, where Adam and Eve kind of do the whole, however we take that story, it's a whole our will rather than what we've been told sort of thing. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say, and a lot of canonic thinkers, they might all phrase it differently, but there's some sense in which um, the kind of human being that Jesus is, is uniquely suited to carry forth the divine identity into the world and to be uniquely endowed with the Spirit and to and to change everything and yeah. to reconcile us to God. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to throw this in there that if Jesus was, if, if we emphasize his humanity, I don't see how he wasn't upset that he had to give up sex. And I don't see how that, and I know that's what makes people so uncomfortable, but there's no way that a fully man, if he had similar levels of testosterone and lived on this earth through his twenties, I mean, there's no way he saw beautiful women and was just like, "Yeah, that means nothing," unless <laughs> he unless he had some Holy Spirit tempering so, that stuff too. Yeah, you know? that, that's right. I mean, it's and scriptures really. I mean, again, you, you you said it several times, and I think you're right. My experience with teaching has been this has been true. Uh, we get uncomfortable, like the Jesus of the Gospels, just read without adornment, without doing some of the back the back door. Hey, I'm uncomfortable, so I'll say this vague theological thing and get out of this. You know, stu- students do that. We all kind of do it. I mean, and Jesus is radical, not just because like, oh, salvation's good news. He's radical because God, if this happened, it's the most, C.S. Lewis says this probably most famously, it's, it's the most significant thing, not just because it saves you. If he didn't save anybody, it'd be the most remarkable thing. God walking around with right. us and sweating and bleeding and getting hungry and sleeping. Um, and so per- certain parts of scripture, they just, we, we tend to gloss over them. It's fascinating. You can look at commentaries from the history of the church where they'll get to certain verses in the Gospels and they don't have anything to say or they'll just skip them entirely. So there's two examples of this, right? Uh, There's many examples, but an example that's always been very meaningful to me is Luke 
252. And this is at the very end of the only story we have biblically of Jesus's childhood, really, which is the boy Jesus in the temple. Mark doesn't have it. Matthew doesn't have it. John doesn't have it. You wouldn't know Jesus had much of a childhood for those ones, except you get the nativity in Matthew. But as far as a boyhood story, this is when Jesus gets forgotten in the temple and they have to come back for him. At the very end of that story, Luke says, and Jesus grew in stature and in wisdom. Jesus grew in wisdom and in favor with God and with man. So it's right there in Luke. And it's, again, it's very straightforward grammatically. You can't really translate your way out of it. It's, it's, it says God, Jesus grew in wisdom and he grew in favor with God and, meth, and with man. That's really, really remarkable. And Luke doesn't give you like a, a theology lesson after it. He just moves on. And you have okay. to deal with it, right? Uh, you have to make some sense of it, right? The idea the, of a, The significance being the, the God part of that statement? Favor with God? And wisdom. I mean, this is this is the thing. Right. If Jesus is already back to the canonic idea, right? If Jesus is already om, uh, omniscient, right? He has all knowledge. He knows all things. He has all wisdom. Well, how's he going to grow in wisdom? Right. Right. What does that mean? And, and when uh, and when did that even happen? I mean, was right. he a two year old and spoke Aramaic and Greek yeah, and right. Hebrew and <laughs> which is interesting? In the in the of course that that is one distinction that the church made, especially in the Middle Ages between the depiction of Jesus in the Gospels, which is very human in certain ways, um, and the depiction of Jesus in some place like the the Quran, where Jesus, basically right from the womb, in the, in the Quran, Mary's going to get stoned after he's born because they're like, hey, you're not married. What are you doing having a baby? And Jesus, as a baby, like defends his mother and says, hey, I'm a prophet. Leave her alone, like as a baby. And that's, that's <laughs> and the Gospels just resist that impulse to give that kind of a uh, very non-baby, non-human sort of ability to Jesus. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That baby was pretty quiet in the manger, <laughs> from what I can gather. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so the way of the canonic Christ, the so so the book is the way of the canonic Christ, right. the Christia, Christology of Jurgen Moltmann. So that's right. give our listeners a snapshot of that dude. How far he took this. Was was it from a Christian perspective? Why yeah. are you so interested in this guy? Yeah, so Jürgen Moltmann is uh, in his 90s now, one, one of our great living uh, theologians. And a theologian, you can tell from his name, right, he's German, but a, a theologian of global significance uh, on a lot of different levels. And he, um, he's he got a really interesting story, and it's his personal story that first drew me to him in grad school and then further ended up doing my doctoral work on him, which was the basis for this for this book. Um, his, you know, we, we hear about people who are, for instance, Holocaust survivors or people like, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who like resisted Hitler and were members of the Confessing Church. Jürgen Moltmann is different. Jürgen Moltmann was like a regular German young man who thought like, hey, yeah, nationalism, Hitler, the world kind of crapped on us after the First World War. And he's he serves in Hitler's army. Uh, he doesn't serve for very long. He sees one of his friends get blown apart. It severely traumatizes him. He gets captured shortly thereafter. In fact, later on, uh, much later in his story, he would say, I'm so grateful to God I never killed anyone uh, fighting in, 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 the, in Hitler's army. Uh, and, he, and he didn't, but he saw horrible things and all of that. And like a lot of, we forget this from history, but like a lot of German young people at the time, they had very little knowledge of anything like the final solution, anything like what was going to happen to the Jews in the Holocaust. In fact, Moltmann doesn't hear about any of that until after he's captured by Allied forces. He, he's in a POW camp, basically. And uh, it starts breaking into global news. They start discovering the concentration camps and how horrific that is. And wow. he recounts he recounts a story of the wardens 
pushing newspaper clippings into his jail cell, basically saying, look what you died for. You're disgusting. This is what your friends died for. And he's devastated. He's basically suicidal. His friends have died for this. He's fought for this. His country is disgraced. And in that incredibly dark moment, like this, this chaplain kind of putters around and is like, oh, here's a little pamphlet with Mark's gospel written on it. And he reads Mark's gospel. And he says the part that brought me, where, where, where Christ reached out to me, he doesn't use typical conversion language because it's, it's far more intense and, and maybe more personal in some ways for him. Uh, but he says that the moment when, when Christ reached out to me was the word from the cross in Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Moltman just broke at that moment and said, somehow, whatever this God is, he's come close to a, pl- a place of such desolation. I can't imagine any other God, any other religion feeling this, being in this, being close to me, in this, with me. Um, and so he was basically sort of, so from that point on, he, his trajectory was pretty much set. Uh, he became a very renowned theologian. He's been incredibly important to various Jewish Christian dialogues since then, and again, globally significant on a lot of levels. Um, but he was pretty much destined from that point to do canonic Christology. God has to come close for Moltman, or else he would have been alone in that jail cell with a God who's too far away to understand anything about his pain. Um, and so, yeah, so his his work is really significant, um, but there was no, I discovered this happily when I was doing my, my doctoral work, there, there was no f- full-blown book-length English language treatment of his Christology, which seems remarkable given given how long and important his career has been. Uh, yep. But I got to write on it, and so that's what the book is about. And he takes a very unique and, and in some places radical perspective on the kenosis or the self-emptying of Jesus. Yeah, sweet, sweet. Is there any territory that we should get into that that I haven't led us to? Anything that's kind of a highlight? highlight reel that we haven't gotten to because this is this has been fabulous i wish all interviews went this well so it's it's totally uh, everything is good as is but i don't want to miss out on anything if you've got anything written down that we haven't touched on sure yeah i mean i'll I'll say that um, a lot of what we've talked about tonight has been me just sort of in, in very broad strokes sketching what what is a kind of canonic view uh, of Jesus look like. Um, I'll be honest, a lot of views on the kenosis of Jesus, uh, as much justice as they try to do to a lot of the things that we've kind of discussed tonight, uh, one of the things that drew me to, to Moltmann is that he he his Christology does things a bit better than some of these other ones do. So, for instance... Um, one of the one of the big things that you'll see across a lot of kind of canonic Christology is that kenosis never makes it out of the head in the sense of kenosis is an idea. Well, what's an, an idea for? It's an idea to make the whole God-man thing make sense, right? It's, it's kind of like a, an intellectual mechanism. Moltmann says, get that out of here. I've got the gospel witness, which seems to point in this direction, but it's not for me to solve a riddle. It's for me to know how to be a Christian. Wow. He, he takes it from concept to ethic. He takes it from theology to church uh, in a really, really stark way. And so for him, he says that it's no mistake that he, th- he thinks Scripture teaches a canonic Christ. And then he says, and it, then it calls you, the church, the body of Christ. So you are the body of the canonic Christ, which means you need to follow the way of the canonic Christ, which is why I titled the book what I did. The way of the canonic Christ. That means the only proper the only church that's properly living into its identity as the body of Christ would be a canonic church. 
So what does that mean? We might say, well, we don't have omnipotence. What are we going to empty ourselves of? I don't know. I think we're living in a cultural moment right now where the church has had to learn, maybe, maybe in some of the hardest ways imaginable, there's some things that we need to be emptied of. Uh, yeah. It might, might look like pride. It might look like privilege. Whatever it's going to look like, it's going to look like a vulnerable church, a church that's willing to suffer, a, will, a church that's willing to say um, women, minorities, nature itself has suffered sometimes because the church hasn't, hasn't known what emptying itself looks like or has forgotten it. Um, Man, you're yeah. speaking my language. And so, yeah, I think that's, I'd really, if anybody's intrigued at all who's listening to these ideas, I think you can find them in a lot of people, but for someone to drive uh, kenosis from the level of concept, where it's interesting and fascinating, we've, we can discuss like we have here, which is great, but to drive it from there to action and the yep. shape of the church, uh, Moltmann's done it, done it really amazingly, and he's inspired a lot of other theologians to similarly push this idea forward. You know. Yeah. When, when you talk about the church emptying, I, I, I definitely me saying you're speaking my language definitely came across pretty prideful. Maybe, maybe it, it was, but what, what I think of when I hear that is just, it seems like, and social media is a big part of this. I, part of this. I wonder sometimes if social media went away, if we would have half the problems, but it's like progressive uh, political Christians, conservative political Christians, progressive theology Christians, uh, conservative theology. Why do we speak in such a way of I'm right and you're dumb or I'm righteous and you're bad and I voted for this person and if you didn't and you need to seek God more. It's like this posture of I figured it out and I'm going to verbally beat everybody up who doesn't agree with me and without trying to understand why a person is the way they are, what their background was, what their cultural influence were for crying out loud. It's like, that's the sort of stuff that we've got, we've got to be emptied of. I mean, sure. There were times when Jesus was sharp tongued, but it was maybe every single time with church rulers and Pharisees, it was never with someone who like had a different perspective or was trying to figure things out. I mean, it's uh that's, that's a tough yeah. one for, for me to swallow. And I, and I hope, I hope we can change, but man, that's what I call a revival. If the church can turn that around. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, and that, and that's where uh, Moltmann says that, you know, and a lot of people have said this throughout church history, he's just repeating other people, as Christ goes, meaning how we think about Christ, as Christ goes, so goes the church. And for a long time, the church had this pretty much only divine vision of Jesus. So it was all about glory and power and triumph. And, 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 it, and it, it led to a triumphalistic Christianity. And a, lot, and a lot of the contemporary church's issues, this is certainly not, not all-encompassing or, or an answer to everything, but the church has had to struggle with what does it look like to not be the triumphant cultural you know, thing anymore. And it's led to this kind of polarization and this denouncing of each other's motives. I mean, Philippians 2, we've talked about it a lot tonight. Let your mind be the same as the mind of Christ Jesus. A few verses before it, he, he kind of preempts it and says, regard others as better than yourselves. Like you don't get a much more clear, it's not a tricky ethic right there. Like however you regard yourself, Regard others as being better than you, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But so difficult, right? There's uh, yeah. a New Testament scholar who says sometimes the New Testament gets a rap for being hard to understand. Maybe it's just hard to obey. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's probably both. But uh, yeah, for sure. Yep. 
Sam, um, this is for my wife. Are you married? Do you have any kids? <laughs> yes, uh, thank you. Thank you for asking. I, uh, yes, I'm hap- uh, happily married to my wife, Anna. We just celebrated our, our nine-year uh, anniversary. We've got four kids, uh, seven, five, three, and one. And nice. uh, they've, they've been really good upstairs, not making a ton of noise while I've been recording yeah. this. <laughs> hey, we, we have the same exact spread of kids, except we are seven years ahead of you. We have 14, 12, 10, and 8. Fun. Yeah, man. Fun. Hey, yeah. it's fun talking. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Joey. I've enjoyed it a lot.